Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is February 21st, 2023, and I am delighted to be here with Dr. Yara Asi, one of FMEP's 2023 Palestinian non-resident fellows. This is our first official podcast together with U.S. fellow Yara, and I am so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah Ann. I want to start with your formal biography to give our listeners a glimpse into the breadth and depth of your work. Yara Asi is assistant professor at the University of Central Florida in the School of Global Health Management and Informatics and a visiting scholar at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University in her capacity as co-director of the Palestine Program for Health and Human Rights. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Arab Center, Washington, D.C., a 2021 Fulbright U.S. Scholar to the West Bank, and the co-chair of the Palestine Health Justice Working Group and the American Public Health Association. Yara previously served as the fall 2021 U.S. Fellow at Al-Shabaka Palestinian Policy Network, another partner of MAPS. Her research agenda focuses on global health, human rights, and development in fragile populations. She's also worked with Amnesty International USA and the Palestinian Amer American Research Center on policy and outreach issues. She has presented at multiple national and international conferences on topics related to global health, food security, health informatics, and women in healthcare, and has published extensively on health and well-being in fragile and conflict-affected populations in journal articles and book chapters. Yara is widely published in the popular press. We're going to have links on this site. You can see her most recent piece, which was uh, in late December of 2022 in the New York Times, also 972 Magazine, The New Arab, The Washington Post, The Conversation, Al Jazeera, many outlets. And Yara's forthcoming book with John Hopkins University Press will examine war as a public health crisis. That is quite a CV. Thank you, Yara. So my, you. my first question for you, not in the language of, of your professional biography. Will you please tell the FMAP audience about yourself? Where are you from? What do you want listeners to know about you as a scholar, as a researcher, as a person? Well, thank you, Sarah Ann, for that introduction and, and for the invitation today. Um, first and foremost, I am a Palestinian from the occupied West Bank. I was born in Nablus, and my mom is from a nearby village, and my dad was from a Palestinian village that became part of the state of Israel in 1948. Um, I moved to the U.S. at four years old. I've lived here ever since. Um, so I am firmly situated in the Palestinian diaspora, but was very fortunate to have been able to visit the West Bank almost every year and to maintain those connections with my family and just the place itself and see it over time. Um, as a researcher, as you, as you noted in the intro, my work is primarily situated in public health, global public health, focusing on health and fragile populations. The majority of my work is focused on the Middle East and Palestine specifically, of course. Um, with regard to Palestine, I do some work on just describing and assessing health policy, health outcomes like you would do in any geographic setting. But I also consider myself um, in, the, in the tradition established decades ago by Palestinian scholars who sought to reframe Palestinian health challenges 
as not just um, humanitarian concerns to be studied with a, a biomedical lens only, but as a manifestation of how the primary barriers to Palestinian health are in fact part of a much broader and larger uh, effort of dispossession of Palestinians. And this is again, just a manifestation of that. As a Palestinian who grew up in the United States, um, I grew up feeling incredibly aware of how I, as a Palestinian and I guess Palestinians in general were perceived here. I very often got funny looks and strange questions and awkward jokes when I would tell people I was Palestinian or tell people I was going to Palestine this summer or had like a Palestinian flag on a t-shirt or a keychain or something. Um, I did a history fair project on the Israeli occupation in middle school one year. And it is, it's such a clear memory for me of how the judges were just really making me feel like the issue was too controversial, too complicated for me as like a seventh grader to understand. Never mind that I was Palestinian and I had experienced some of it myself. Um, at the time, I didn't have the tools to understand why or how like my nationality or what to me was a very clear story about oppression and violence was perceived with like puzzled looks and you know these these kinds of uh these statements um but learning not just more about the history of israel and palestine of course but about other systems of supremacy and oppression and armed conflict and indigenous movements and colonialism and all that really helped fill in some of those gaps for me over time. So now I feel like I understand that the direct and structural violence Palestinians have dealt with for generations um, are in part enabled by this ability to dehumanize us Palestinians, or again, they're obscured by this very often repeated misconception that it's just too complex. It's been going on for too long. Um, so this happens all the time with marginalized people and their needs. So I'm also really invested, like you noted, in public outreach to try to counter some of those dehumanizing tropes and use evidence to argue that unless we deal with the injustices at the core of these problems, we'll never really be addressing them. And so I, I try to do that from a variety of angles. Thank you so much for all of that and um, for this glimpse of seventh grade Yara trying to... <laughs> trying to explain and engage and and what you were up against and and also for for bringing us up to to where you are now with your family still um in Palestine mm -hmm. you here in the US yep. with a, a a foot in each place sure um yeah. as you just as you described so i i want to ask you um you talked about being a part of this larger effort to reframe health and the study of health and Palestinian health for being something not just about humanitarian interests, mm -hmm. um, which I think is often how people think about health outcomes or health questions, but rather part of understanding it or understanding Palestinian health as part of the, the broader effort of, of dispossession yeah. um, and, and fighting the dehumanization of, of Palestinians, which enables so many of, of the health outcomes that you report on. So I, I want to ask you to go in deeper for us, please, into your research. Um, talk to us about the questions that you're trying to answer in your work. Yeah, well, or, I think... Or actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. 
Talk yeah. to us about the questions you're trying to ask, even if not answer. Yes, yes. That it's it's not it's it's me and and many others that are trying to answer these complex questions. But I think you set it up really nicely just in the question. So I was trained in, and most of my work comes primarily from a public health lens. So I hope to use health, which I think is a topic we can all understand on a personal level. Like sometimes I think um, while political science and history and, and the language of the law are important mechanisms, um, they can seem kind of abstract. And so health, I think, is something that affects all of us. We've all been patients or had experiences with family members. So I try to use health to describe some of the broader mechanisms at play in terms of Palestinian oppression. I think a lot of people understand if you tell them about the poor state of Palestinian health, but they are likely um, to try to situate it in terms of Palestine is just a poor, war-torn country, and that's just how poor, war-torn countries are, right? They don't necessarily see what that means what does that translate to they don't see the the ambulances being blocked at checkpoints they don't know about the medical permit system um they don't get why cancer patients why, why do they even have to go to israel why can't they just get treated in palestine these are questions we don't ask in most countries in the world so these are in fact human-made policy choices decisions that are just accepted as part of this entire status quo that palestinians just have to endure uh, along with so many others in fact, you know, Palestinians, um, when I do publish about this in, in popular press, I get comments blaming Palestinians for their own deficiencies, for their own tragedies. Um, now, of course, there are many levers that Palestinian actors can pull um, that they don't for various reasons. And that is something that I explore in my work and also hope to continue to explore in the future, including as part of the fellowship. But in the broader lens of settler colonialism, a lot of these actions make a lot more sense. Um, beyond just this framing of, of armed conflict and war and humanitarian catastrophe as though it's uh, you know, a result of an earthquake or something uncontrollable. Um, so I and some amazing other scholars in this field are working on connecting these dots. Um, and it's also important when doing this to de-exceptionalize Palestine in some of these conversations and link what's happening in Palestinian contexts to other contexts of oppression and colonial violence, both historical and contemporary. So this is something I really try to do in my work, use the evidence as not just uh, of looking at outcomes um, as not just, you know, a way to describe a population, but a way to describe broader phenomenon that are experienced by that population that lead to those outcomes. Um, as you noted, uh, other issues that I'm interested in are food, food security and insecurity, which again is often a result of um, intentional and sometimes unintentional policy choices and almost never of genuine scarcity and the role of women in health work, which is often unpaid and uncounted. Um, I also think it's important, especially when we look at vulnerable populations that have little autonomy or sovereignty to look at how broader societal issues like climate change, for example, affects these most vulnerable of populations. And, um, you know, I'm always discovering new ideas and books and articles that fascinate and challenge me and they pull my work in all sorts of different directions. And that's part of the fun is continuing to learn over time. I guess my broader argument, and I note this in the New York Times piece that you referenced, is that 
health is political. And I, this is not coming from me. This is widely understood and kind of said in, in the public health world. And this is true everywhere. It's not just true in Palestine, even though some, you know, people like to push back on this. I think it's this sense that health is a personal thing. It's a result of personal choices, personal wealth. Health is just about science and not politics. Health is somehow unlike everything else in the world where it's completely objective, right? Um, but when we look at public health, we don't just see statistics and outcomes and maps. Um, we see advocacy for healthy food, for adequate physical exercise, for mental health care. Um, we see people advocating against gun violence and child abuse and uh, nuclear weapons. There's a whole physicians group that does that and torture. Um, these are factors that we innately recognize. You don't have to have a public health degree to recognize these as fundamentally related to how people live and their ability to thrive. Um, the ability to access health care um, is literally decided in legislation written by politicians. That's true domestically and that's true internationally. Um, the social determinants of health, like our ability to access healthcare, education, a, a safe place to live, an area with green space that allows us to exercise outside, an area with you know grocery stores that sell fresh fruits and vegetables. These are all a result of political choices. Um, so I also try to explore these relationships in my work to say that yes, you know, health is about biology and genetics and chemistry, but it's also about the ability to not get killed or traumatized by a bomb or to access food and water that is not tainted by sewage. And um, if you can't, we need to study why that is. Great, thank you for all of that. That was a <laughs> fabulous lesson in public health. Um, and in the importance of your work overall uh, and of these questions that you're asking. And I actually, I wanted to ask you to, to unpack one piece of what you said. Um, you talked about doing work to de-exceptionalize Palestine and place what's happening to Palestinians in the context of what happens to other, uh, in, in other places and other contexts that are suffering colonial violence or, or other forms of oppression. Would you unpack, un unfurl that for us a little bit more about some of those comparisons, what, what, why it's important to de-exceptionalize Palestine and what it looks like to do it? Sure. Well, we could have a whole webinar on that, but I think I'll start why de-exceptionalize Palestine is because when we treat something as such a unique, um, unpredictable, you know, phenomenon, then I think that gives us cover for when we don't deal with it. Whereas we say, this is not the same as this situation, but it's it's coming from similar structures of racism, of uh, censorship, of um, you know authoritarianism, of militaristic cultures, and so we have overcome some situations in the past of of this nature. We have not overcome many others. We've learned lots of good lessons and a lot of whole you know terrible lessons over time. Um, so I think if we can look at Palestine as part of global movements towards liberation, towards equity, then it becomes easier for us to imagine situations, um, solutions. You know, it's, it's, I think with this, with this situation, so often the conversation about solutions is overcome by what, what do people think of? They think of one or two states. When you talk about solutions, they're thinking immediately about where will the border be and what are the political solutions and blah, 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 blah. And I think that that has allowed us to completely overlook 
solutions that could help people now that um, do not need to wait for political resolution that, again, a whole other topic does not seem to be coming anytime soon. So de-exceptionalizing is situating Palestine and other contexts um, that, again, we're not saying this is exactly like fill in the blank, because when you say that, people say, well, no, it's not, because this was different and that was different. No one is saying any historical event is exactly the same. But if you look at histories of settler colonialism, and how, for example, indigenous peoples in the Americas were treated and how they were pushed for territorial expansion and how they were treated in terms of healthcare, and how they are now, you know, sequestered in reservations that are underserved and underpopulated. You kind of can't avoid but see the parallels. And I think that that helps us explain things uh, in ways that make it sound like this is not actually new. This is a new, a different way that it's being done currently. Um, but we actually know something about this. So let's not pretend that this is the first time we've ever seen it. Wow. Thank you. That was great. I like, um, I really appreciate your clarity on both the level of diagnosis and intervention um, and how important this is for this for basic being able to understand and, and begin to grasp and, and access the issues. So thank you right. for that. Um, I want to I want to shift for a second and ask you a question um, to to re-exceptionalize Palestine, not re-exceptionalize, <laughs> but refocus on Palestine. I know what you mean. Yeah. W will you talk for a bit about like what is where where are we right now? What what is this moment in time and in history for Palestinians? for Palestine. Can you can you describe it for us and, and tell us what it means? Um, you know, it's hard to say what a moment means when you are in it, I think. So it is difficult for me to give a um, comprehensive answer. I will say that when you look at some things, like when you look at the growing global consensus of apartheid, when you look at the presence of more diverse voices, including Palestinians, in media and academia and um, government and advocacy groups, um, when you look at what student and youth groups are doing over time, I mean, it's, you know, arguable that they really pushed the apartheid lexicon, you know, along the way. When you look at what some politicians say publicly now um, versus what they could say even five, 10 years ago, um, sometimes you allow yourself to feel a sense of hope that maybe finally the tides are turning somehow. You know, I frequently have these conversations um, that, you know, something feels different now and it feels like we can say and, and explore spaces that weren't available to previous generations. On the other hand, when I was just in the West Bank in this past October, 2022, um, many people there told me, for them, it was the worst it's been in decades. Um, many young people, of course, not all, um, but were feeling hopeless about the future. And they were feeling incredibly disconnected from what used to be like a very, you know, uh, cohesive and liberation movement. Um, the settlements are absolutely everywhere. Um, you can't drive 10 minutes in the West Bank without seeing one. I mean, this brings a lot of obvious questions to mind in terms of the future. Gaza is on... 15 years of blockade and the international community barely even comments on it anymore in any context, except for like humanitarian agencies, you know, sometimes issuing reports. We just this week saw the U.S. block this U.N. Security Council vote against Israeli settlements, which is a policy that echoes the U.S.'s own stated policy. 
Um, there's, of course, you know, this these accusations of anti-Semitism now and the attempt to envelop discussion of Zionism as a part of that. So when I consider those two poles, it's like, is this a point where you have to hit rock bottom before things get better? Or will we just start seeing settlements just entirely take over the West Bank and Gaza just does become completely uninhabitable, as has been predicted, you know, several times. Um, all the young, educated people are trying to leave. What if they do? And what happens when Abbas dies and the PA will become completely leaderless and aimless? You know, these thoughts also creep into my head. So I'm not 100% sure what this moment means yet, and but that's the thing, right? We It's not decided yet. It can mean either of those two outcomes. Um, and so all I and any of us, I think, can do is continue to do the work that we believe will get Palestinians closer to the liberation side of that and, and to equity and elevate and support the work of others that are doing so and hope that in 10 or 20 years, when we look back at this moment, we say, you know, these are the seeds that were planted. And now, you know, we're seeing the fruits of that work. Um, we definitely won't get closer to that if we allow ourselves to get demoralized and overwhelmed. Um, so I try to think of all the scholars and all the people who did this work in the Intifada under, you know, military occupation that came before us um, and hope that we can carry the torch for those who follow us and, and see what, see what the future brings. I love it. May you carry that torch. So many people. So I hope that um, part of this work towards liberation is, is also using this, FMET platform, which is uh, very, very much the hope of, of this program into which uh, you have been invited. So you're going to be an FMEP fellow for 2023. We're starting now. Um, this is our second year of the fellowship. And uh, I want to ask you, what do you most want FMEP's audiences to know or to think about or to be challenged by or to uh, what what invitation do you want to issue to them? Yeah. Um, well, first, I, I actually I have to to call out the pre the inaugural fellows Maha and Jihad and the great work that they did over the time and um, knowing that they were part of this was really uh, a great factor for me when when you invited me to do so and I'm Thank really you. excited to do this work with FMEP over the coming year. Um, you know, I would say first, you know, let's don't let anyone convince you that this is too complicated an issue to discuss or understand. And that's something that I hope to address in this work, that if we can see the minutiae, then that can help us understand the big picture. Um, this, you know, this kind of argument that it's complex is an effort to obscure what many of us can plainly see, right, with our eyes. It's violence, it's oppression, it's territorial expansion against an occupied and besieged people. And it's enabled um, for a variety of reasons by much of the world's most powerful countries. And that's all on top of bad representation and advocacy by the Palestinian actors. So I hope to use health and other social issues to illustrate this throughout the course of the fellowship in ways that I hope really resonate with people kind of coming at at it from this not new angle, right? I mean, this, this, I'm not the, 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 I'm just trying to build off the work that's been done and hope that it helps bring some clarity. Um, you know, in terms of being challenged, this is challenging work. 
Um, it can be very heartbreaking. I know you know that from your experiences and very frustrating. I know you also probably know that from your experiences. Um, so I think I would challenge people to see the human stories in the work. I think that's a, a, a part health can play in being clarifying there. Um, you know, what is the security justification in denying a permit for a child with cancer who needs to get chemotherapy, right? Or for a, not allowing her mother to travel with her? Um, how would any of us feel if, as has been reported so many times in the last few weeks, if our loved one was dying on the street and there's an ambulance blocked from coming to receive them? Or if our sister or aunt or wife had to deliver a child at a checkpoint? Like, these are not hypothetical situations. And actually, you know, learning about this, I that's really what pushed me into health into wanting to discuss this. And so I feel like that same spark that it ignited in me when I just read about how often and how consistently this happens. I hope that that also works for the FMEP audience. Um, and I hope people realize how disconnected those everyday realities that actually happen are from this discussion of one state, two states that often subsumes this issue. I'm not saying that those conversations don't need to be had, but A, it's not for external audiences to decide. That's a decision Palestinians should make. And it also can't give us cover, like I said earlier, for not dealing with that child situation, those women at the checkpoint situation. Um, and that's why the global approach to Palestine has so clearly failed. Um, it has not and has never been about providing economic incentives only. That is really what we see as a global response to Palestine. When you look, when you drill down, ever since Oslo, it's just been like, how can we keep this thing afloat? Um, it's not about justice or accountability. Um, and we need to have a, a conversation. And I'm hopeful that myself and my uh, the other fellow that will, will be along with me will be part of that conversation, you know, questioning why we allow these blatantly unjust structures to persist, not just in Palestine, but I think Palestine offers a way to open that conversation and allow us to question, you know, cultures of militarism and of racism and, you know, all these other issues. And that's part of what I hope to contribute to in some tiny way, if I'm able. And I really appreciate the opportunity to do so. We are so grateful that you said yes. And that, <laughs> and, and that Rabia Egbaria, the other uh, fellow, the other 2023 fellow also yeah. said yes. We are so, so, so excited to to um, to to launch and begin this year with both of you, and also so so grateful to um, Mahan Nassar and Jihad Abu Salim for being our inaugural fellows in in 2022. And um, I really appreciate that the I, I heard it as invitations, many invitations to the FMEP audience um, to to join this conversation and. Uh, people are already in the conversation, but to join, to deepen, to 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 learn new aspects, um, and to and to figure out new ways of of engaging. Um, Absolutely. And thank you for all of that. So thank you for thank you. for teaching and and for guiding and for advocating and for researching and um, <laughs> and and for and for all of what you're doing and and thank you for doing it with us. I'm really grateful. Thank you, Sarah Ann, and thanks to um, Kristen and Laura and the rest of the team. I'm really looking forward to it. Great. And I want to also thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Uh, please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, 
for resources related to this podcast. I mentioned a couple of things that uh, Yara recently wrote. We're going to have have resources there, have uh, links there on the website, um, and also for lots of other rich content relating to Palestine uh, and to Israel. And um, you should subscribe to our many resources. Subscribe to this podcast so you can stay up to date. Subscribe to our events announcements so that you'll know when, when Yara and Rabia Agbaria, the other 2023 fellow, are hosting webinars. Um, and Or just listen to this podcast and, and you can hear everything. You'll find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, SoundCloud, or Spotify. You can also watch video versions of the podcasts, including this one on YouTube. Uh, thank you so much, Yara, and thank you to the audience for being here. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.